lines and talks about them. They're referred to as the Nazca lines. They were actually developed by the Nazca people between like 500 BC and about through 500 AD. And for many years, they were just assumed that these are just like irrigation, ancient irrigation lines in this desert. Somehow this is how they were able to get water where they needed to be. And that was the predominant thought until 1939 when a Long Island professor by the name of Dr. Paul Kosick got into an airplane and flew above all these random irrigation lines only to discover that these aren't just random lines. These are shapes and forms, and there's hundreds of them. Uh, these would go for lots of square miles. Uh, some of them are just geometrical, but like over 70 of them are zoomorphic. Massive insects, birds, reptiles, a whale, and here's some examples of them. Maybe you've seen this, and they're like, whoa. But of course, you would never actually know that these Nazca lines were actually uh, giving shape to animals unless you could see it from a way high above perspective. I tell you this because, you know, when it comes to the Bible, a lot of people think that it's just like, well, it's just kind of Random stories and events and people and a war over here and a bunch of teaching over here and God's given a lot of law over here and some Proverbs and, and then Jesus and some New Testament stuff, books and Revelation, but you don't really see how it all fits together. It just kind of seems like some random pieces, and that is until you take the big picture look of what God is doing. If you want to give a one-word summary of the entire Bible, Like one word, this is the word I would pick, redemption. From the very first nanosecond of creation to the final cry of all of its, all things are being brought together in Christ and the new heavens and new earth in the book of Revelation, there is one grand overarching theme and it is redemption. And you may actually feel like, man, I don't even see how my life works in to what God might be doing. It seems for me, I'm just in one kind of random event after another, and I'm just trying to survive and get through it day by day, week by week. And you don't understand that God is presently at work in you. He is accomplishing a work, and it is related to this overarching kingdom agenda called redemption. And certainly, as we've been going through the book of Ruth, You've got folks like Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, and they really have no idea of the significant ways that God is working through their mundane, everyday decisions and choices, and yet he is bringing about the redemption that will revolutionize their lives. Now, uh, when we come to the word redemption... You're like, well, what what does that word even mean? Let me give you just a simple definition. It is to pay a purchase price. It is with a view of releasing another from bondage or significant danger. That's what redemption is. And redemption is exactly what Naomi and Ruth needed. So just to give you a little bit of an overview of where we've been, uh, you've got a woman by the name of Naomi, and she is really the central figure in the book of Ruth. And her and her husband, Elimelech, due to a famine in the land of Israel, specifically Judah, they live in Bethlehem, the famine is so severe that they decide that they're going to leave the promised land and go to Israel's enemies in the land of Moab, about 50 miles away. 
a land that is, they have their, their primary deity is a god named Chemish, a god that receives child sacrifices. And so they move with their two boys, and they show up in the land of Moab, and really things go from bad to worse. And Naomi has this like deep descent into depression due to the horrific events that take place in her life. First of all, her husband Elimelech dies, and then her two boys decide like, well, may as well just kind of get married, and they marry Moabite women, those who are they're thoroughly pagan. They know nothing of the one true God. And then those two boys die. And it's one heartache after another for Naomi. And those boys and those marriages have no children. And she is despondent. And yet she hears that God has actually relieved the famine. And he has brought bread back to the house of bread into the land of Judah, into Bethlehem. And so she makes her way back to Bethlehem. She's got her two daughter-in-laws in tow. And she tries to put the run on them. And she tells them, listen, where I'm going... There is no hope for you. You turn back. You go back to your mamas. You go find another husband. You try a do-over, but leave me. And Orpah, one of the two daughter-in-law, says, all right, you've convinced me. I'm out of here. But the other, Ruth, says, no, there is no way. In fact, she literally grabs hold of her and clings on to her. And she says, there is no way I'm going to leave you. I'm going to be with you throughout your life. I'm going to be with you in your death. And I want you to know why. Remember like Ruth 1, 16 and 17? Because your God has become my God. I'm no longer a follower of these pagan gods. Kamesh is distant. I want you to know that Yahweh, the one true God of revelation, the God of Israel, the God of all creation, he's my God. And I'm going back with you. And we're in this together. And so they go back. And when they show back up in Bethlehem, some of the women like recognize like, whoa, that woman looks a lot like Naomi, who left here about 10 years ago, but man, what happened to her? Because she is just a shell of who she once was. She has plummeted into this, just the deep claws and the trenches of despair and discouragement. And she says, yeah, I don't want you to call me Naomi pleasant or beautiful anymore, lovely. I want you to call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. You see, for Naomi, she can't reconcile how God can be the God Almighty and at the same time be a God of loyal love because her experiences are just pain and disaster and loss. So call me Mara. And so when they come to Bethlehem and they set up camp in a little house, but Ruth has made a vow and she's going to take care of Naomi. And so she goes and hatches this plan of going and starting to glean and get food. That is going to fields and picking up grain. And she just so happens in the providence of God to go into the field of a guy by the name of Boaz, a real upstanding guy who just happens to be a close relative of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech. And Boaz not only notices her, but cares for her and provides for her. And by providing for her, provides for Naomi. Such is the care, and Naomi's kind of putting this all together in a close relative, that Naomi is starting to see that just through a sacrifice of Ruth and how Ruth goes out and tries to provide for her and how Boaz is doing this, so she makes a move. And in Ruth chapter 3, you've got one of the most intriguing, perhaps even the more comical approaches to how to try to get someone married. She decides, listen, 
I need to find a home for you because I'm not going to live forever. And so she's not looking for a, a child. She's not looking to carry on the family name. What she's looking for is someone to marry Ruth, the foreigner, the Moabitess. And so she thinks Boaz is it. You can read about it in chapter 3, and it's pretty intriguing. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it if you're trying to get your kid married to, to try the approach there. But this is how it happened. The scripture writes it out just as it is. But Ruth takes it to a whole new level. She isn't just a making saying, listen, would you be willing to marry me? She goes, no, would you be the kinsman redeemer? Would you redeem my family's name? My late husband, Elimelech, the, my father-in-law, would you marry me and buy the land and carry on as the kinsman redeemer? And maybe by God's grace, we will have a child and a son, and that son then can continue on the family name and do so on the family land, land if you're willing to actually redeem us. Would you be our goel, our kinsman redeemer? Boaz says, well, that's a great idea, but there is one problem. There is someone closer than me. But he says, tomorrow morning, we're going to deal with this. And that's what you find when you come to chapter 4. And that's what we saw last week. Boaz gathers the elders of Bethlehem. He has 10 of them. They're sitting at the gates of Bethlehem. This is where all the judicial and commercial activity would take place. This is the hub of their community. And then we're going to find out when you get to Ruth chapter 4, the answer to one of the most important questions that you can ask, and that is this. How does God's redemption revolutionize our lives? Well, take a look, and we're just going to review this because we looked at it closely last week. But first of all, you need to see from the book of Ruth here that redemption provides God's great blessings. So he gathers them all together. Chapter 4, I'll highlight a few verses here. Verse 3, then he said to the closest relative, remember, there was one closer. He happens to walk by. He says, listen, come here. We've got to have a talk here in front of all the elders. And I'm sure this guy, we don't know his name. In fact, scholars just call him. Mr. No Name has no idea what is about to happen. And he says this, verse 3, then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. She is so destitute. She needs to sell this land so she has some provisions to live on. You are the person that can do this. So verse 4, so I thought to inform you, saying, buy it, before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people, if you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if not, you tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, all right, I'll do that. I will redeem it. I'll give the money for the land, and I will give it to Naomi. That means he's like going to take Naomi, this elderly widow. There's no idea if there's going to be ever a child. She is way past that. He's thinking, I'll just kind of ride this out and I will double my estate. Yeah, it's going to have some cost, but I'll be able to get that land that's been laying fallow for about 10 years up to speed. And I'll tell you what, my future family is going to have an amazing inheritance. I'll do it. I'll redeem her. But Boaz isn't pretty done. He throws out what is really attractive, the land. But he says, by the way, there's something else that you need to know. Verse 5, then Boaz said, You know, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. 
And this is uh, what is referred to as the elaborate marriage, okay? Remember, lever is the uh, Latin word for brother-in-law. And so the idea is Ruth's husband has died. He would be the one that would inherit the land. You need to marry her, have a son, and that son is going to carry on the family name and he's going to carry on the land in the family. You're just holding it in trust. All of a sudden, Mr. No Name is like, whoa, that's not such a good deal after all. What is second here? So I got to get, get the land. I got to pay for that. And I've got this wife now to take care of. And it's only going to be temporary. Like, this all goes to this future son. I don't think so. I'm going to take a pass on that. Verse 6, the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Nope, just can't do it. Because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. You redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. You see, a kinsman redeemer was like a relative with resources. It was, it was built into the law that you would have protection. So a kinsman redeemer would like save you if you were like in poverty or that you were going to be sold into slavery. It would be a kinsman redeemer that would step in. Or your land was going to be sold, it would be the kinsman redeemer that would buy the land to keep it in the family. But when he throws in Ruth the Moabitess, he's like, no. We don't know exactly why. He may have actually not had the resources to, to have the land, pay for it, and also acquire Ruth as a wife. Or maybe, in fact, that she was from Moab and uh, both those Moab women, remember, they had married those two Jewish boys, Naomi's sons, and those boys both died. And he's thinking, no way, I don't want to be next. I I think I've had enough. We don't know, but he walks away from it. You see, the traits of a redeemer that Mr. No Name declined on, Boaz steps up and does. You've got to be a close relative You have to be able to pay the price uh, to release another from danger or bondage. And you also have to have a willingness. Where Mr. No Name says, no, I'm going to take a pass on this, and he has just forgotten into history, Boaz says, I will do it. And he steps up. And in fact, we see it. Uh, Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. Okay? So here we see it. Boaz marries Ruth. God gives them a son. The women are all saying, wow, look what God has done. And in When they say this, they're telling Naomi, listen, I know that you think you're bitter and life has treated you really hard and you think you've been abandoned by God. And yeah, it has been difficult and it has been painful. But know this, God has never left you. His loyal love never leaves his people and he most certainly has not left you. And they tell him this and and she's, she's taking this all in. And then notice verse 17. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Okay? Naomi's the grandmother, but notice Ruth gives that child to Naomi, a son to carry on that family name. And so they named him Obed, which is an abbreviation for Obadiah, which means servant of the Lord. He is the father of Jesse, 
the father of David. David, who would be the great king of Israel. It's really interesting. This is the only incident, verse 17, where you have the community naming a child. Usually it's the parents, right? Or, you know, maybe a close relative. But here the women of Bethlehem name him Obed. And all of this is to show you the tremendous blessing that redemption that God provides is given to this family. And I want you to know that Boaz not only redeems the land and with it then the well-being of Ruth and Naomi, here's something you really need to understand from the book of Ruth. God is redeeming even their experiences. You see, Obed, that son, he's going to take their past and carry it into the future. That is what is going to take place here. God redeems even the experiences of sacrifice and suffering of Ruth and Naomi and uses them in the life of this boy that God has given named Obed. You see, that's how God works. So from Ruth, Obed's mother, let me tell you some things that Obed is going to learn from his mother. Obed is going to learn about a caliber of faith in Yahweh that overcomes some of the greatest obstacles of life. It's from his mother that he will learn that there is no challenge so great. The huge unknowns can still be walked through by faith in God, even when you don't have all the answers, even when you are poverty-stricken, even when you've been left a widow, even when you are a foreigner and moved in and you don't have any friends and everybody is noticing you, even when you have to do a bunch of back-breaking work and it doesn't seem like it matters, even when you've got a despondent mother-in-law who's laying in a heap on the floor and you're out there working and providing for her, all these obstacles, she moves forward by faith. You can find her life priorities in Ruth 1, 16 and 17. She's made a vow and she keeps it. A vow to God and a vow to her mother-in-law. And I want you to know, you know who the great beneficiary of that kind of faith is? Her kid, Obed. That's how it works. And let me tell you something else that Obed is going to learn from Ruth. And that is, he's going to learn a lot about sacrifice from his mother. He learned a lot about faith. It's interesting, when you look at um, Obed, and you saw the ancestry kind of being traced down there, he eventually becomes the, he becomes the grandfather of David. You remember David, before he was king? About a teenage boy, we're not sure exactly how old he is, maybe, you know, late teenager. He takes on a, a giant by the name of Goliath, you heard of him? And uh, you know what he uses? Five stones. And he takes them out with one. Where do you get that kind of faith? Why, he probably learned it from his grandmother, Ruth. But there's also, you see, he learned a lot about sacrifice. Look at all the different ways that Ruth sacrificed. Laid it all on the line. Didn't take the easy path, the path of security, the, the known path. Was willing to trust God and make great sacrifices for Naomi. Great sacrifices for God. And I want you to know, all of these life lessons, these are things that Obed's going to pick up. That's how it works, even in your life. The experiences that you've gone through, faithfulness, 
knowing and presenting a faith that God has given you where you walk through the tough things and it's known in your family story and you are a person that makes sacrifices. You give graciously. You give of yourself. I want you to know that can get passed down to your kids by virtue of the fact that they hear these stories and it inspires them. But you know, it's not just from Ruth that Obed's going to learn things. Obed is going to learn one of the most important lessons of all from Naomi, and that is this. God's loving kindness, his hesed, his loyal love, never leaves his people. Think of Naomi. I mean, man, Naomi had all those difficult things in her life. And what happened is she became really bitter. She jettisoned the whole idea that God might be a God of love. She still believed in God, called him the Almighty. But I tell you what, all those losses, all that pain, all the discouragement, the deep depression, even when she had a lot of bad theology coming out of her mouth saying, well, I just, God's just dealt with me bitterly. I want you to know that God's loyal love never left her. God forges some of his strongest servants through the dark nights of the soul. You ever been through a season like that? Where you literally are stripped down, you feel like you've got nothing left. It's like your brain, it even starts to fragment. You can't even perhaps even figure out what your middle name is because of the pain and the difficulty. And it's hard to even move forward. And you might even think like, you know what, I think God is done with me. I must have really messed up here because I, I can't sense his loving kindness anywhere. Even when you make statements like that, I want you to know that God's loyal love never leaves. He's not conditional with you. And these lessons that Naomi learned in the midst of all of her pain and her anger and her hurt and her despondency and her depression, she passed on this amazing truth. God's loyal love never leaves you, my grandson. You don't ever forget that. You know, they... uh, they didn't realize all that God was doing. It was just like they were just making decisions and trying to survive and try to take the next step. But God was mightily at work through the midst of this. And you need to know that God even uses our pain to give us a ministry to others. Just like he used Ruth's pain, Naomi's pain, even their sin. I want you to know when they really missed the mark, like Naomi... She's despondent. She is saying things that aren't true about God. She is non-responsive to Ruth, not even encouraging this young girl's faith. It's just in a seedling form. If anybody could have been a real influence, it would have been helpful, Naomi, for just a few words of encouragement. She went radio silent. I want you to know that God can use even your pain for ministry to others. Your experiences that you've gone through, just like Ruth and Naomi, I want you to think about it. Because you might right now think like, you know what? I'm pretty sure God's done with me. I've I've really messed this up, Grant. Try to hide on some of this stuff. I don't want this to be known. But your divorce, or perhaps you've got a wayward child, or you are the wayward child, or you were. Maybe you've gone through a season of deep depression. Maybe you've lost your job, or perhaps you've had financial struggles, or True failure, like you blew it. You knew better, but you, you made a huge royal mess of the whole thing. Maybe you've had leadership or moral failures. I want you to know that God is so sovereign and so gracious that he can work even in the midst 
of our great failures to bring about his good and for you to have a ministry in the lives of others. It's one of the great blessings of redemption. God's not through with you. Who, why are you believing so many lies when he's calling you to believe the truth? To realize that he is a God of redemption. And redemption always brings great blessings, but that requires that you take him at his word and you become a person of faith. And that's what we see here. God uses the experiences in our lives, even the difficult ones, for the furthering of his kingdom work. It's like one scholar said, God is most powerfully present even when he seems most conspicuously absent. He is always working. And the redemption that we find realized in the book of Ruth, it shows us that this provides God great blessing. Let me show you something else. The redemption that's revealed in the book of Ruth, it also shows us and proves God's sovereign power. When we talk about God's sovereign power, it's his ability to act, that he is the ultimate power, the ultimate authority, that what he says and desires, he can make happen. He is sovereign. And if you want to see the sovereign power of God, just look at how this book ends. Now, we've seen God's sovereign work all throughout the book. The reason these details are written is so that we will learn of God's power and his love. I mean, it was God who brought about the end of the famine or brought uh, Ruth to a saving knowledge of himself where her faith is in him. It's God who brought Ruth and Naomi back to Bethlehem. It is God who, who had a kinsman redeemer like Boaz. It is God who actually orchestrated that Ruth would just so happen to show up in Boaz's field. It was God who brought them together. It was God who gave them a child and Boaz stood up as the kinsman redeemer. You see all this when we read this, but I want you to know that they were living in real time and I'm like, I'm not sure how this is all going to happen, but it's all part of the providential work of God. We see his sovereignty. And when you come to verses 18 through 22, you're like, oh, that must be just some sort of like an appendix here. Like, I don't know, I'll just skip over it. Some names, never even heard of them. Can't be important, huh? I want you to know that actually this is at the heart. This is not an appendix. This is at the heart of what the author is trying to communicate to us. That God is working out his kingdom purpose in the lives of his people. That every life is important. And here's an illustration of what that looks like by naming these people. You see, God's fingerprints of his sovereignty and goodness, his footprints, why they're, why they're everywhere. And when you come to the end, you see that he is sovereign to make things happen just like he designed. And so when you come to this genealogy beginning in verse 18, really this is a representative genealogy. It spans nine centuries, ten generations. It doesn't name all of the names. Uh, when the Jews kept track of their genealogies, they would oftentimes just feature some of the most prominent people in a line. And there may be big gaps but this is how they recorded it. This is not signaling some sort of faulty records, but rather showing that there is a direct line that can be traced, that they're a descendant. And so that's what we see here. And so beginning in verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Remember that Perez was the son of Judah and Tamar, who was a Canaanite gal. Remember that? 
Once again, just showing you that he's the God of the nations. These people are all part of this lineage of David. And remember, there is a greater son of David who is Jesus, the Messiah. So they're tracking this, and they're showing that even though there are some big gaps that God has been, as far as in terms of the records, that God is working out his perfect plan in the lives of his people. And so we'll just take a look at it here, verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Amadadab. So Amadadab was the father-in-law of Aaron. You remember Moses and his brother Aaron? Amadadab was Aaron's father-in-law. And to Amadadab was born Nashon. Nashon was the, from the, he was the head of the house of Judah. So if you ever studied like the book of Exodus, you see that he is the leader of Judah. And to Nashon was born Solomon, and to Solomon was born Boaz. Now, Solomon uh, married a woman that, I'm pretty sure you've heard her name before, Rahab. Now, I know you're, Everybody's thinking, Rahab, oh yeah, Rahab, the harlot, right? This Canaanite prostitute. Do you remember what happened uh, right before they go into the promised land and they're going to then take over the first city, Jericho? Uh, They had sent in some spies and this woman, Rahab, actually hid those spies and they then got sent back the report. Rahab marries Solomon. Now, the events that of the book of Ruth are about like 250 to like 300 years later. But in the line uh, coming here to Boaz, you've got Solomon and Rahab. They are distant relatives. And so if you're like, well, how does that work? Have you ever noticed like the Jews refer to like Father Abraham? Is Abraham like their direct father? Like, this is my dad? No, we understand it's a descendant. And that's how this genealogy works. It's by the way, when you see Solomon, and we know like from Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, when they trace that genealogy, that you have Solomon that is married to Rahab. You know, God doesn't see Rahab as Rahab the harlot. I hope no one does that to you. Take your past and some of the horrendous things that you may have done and like that becomes your label? That's not how God sees Rahab, by the way. You know how God sees, God sees Rahab? Rahab, the righteous. How do you know that? Because her faith got transferred to God, right? She is not noted for her fib. She is noted for her faith, faith in God. And God brings her into the family tree of David, who is also then, remember, the greater son of David, comes Jesus. I'll tell you what, that is amazing grace. And so we have, and to Solomon, verse 21, was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Here we have the listing of these genealogies. You know what this all proves? It proves God's sovereign power. Do you see it? I mean, it just makes your mind snap. God using people far from him, bringing him into his family tree, bringing him into the purpose of redemption. It's his God at work. And that's neat. what this does is like all of a sudden helps us realize, whoa, if God is so powerful and he uses all these people with such varied paths and, 
and huge failures and sin and depression and discouragement. And, and he uses them for his purposes. Why, he's so sovereign. He's at work in my life as well. Your life matters. You see, the redemption realized in the book of Ruth, you know what it does? It provides God's great blessing. It also proves God's sovereign power. But here's one other thing I want to show you. It pictures God's coming redeemer. Every time the Jews heard the name David, like, whoa, King David, the king, wasn't a perfect king, but he did have a heart after God. King David was God's answer to all the chaos of the book of Judges, where everybody did what is right in their own eyes. But do you remember that God made a promise to David, a covenant, that from your line will come an eternal son, a king that will reign forever, Messiah. And that was all realized in Jesus, the Messiah. And you see, the book of Ruth is the most stellar example in all the Old Testament of what a kinsman redeemer would do. And it really prefigures Christ. If you want to understand Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ, you have to have a very good understanding of the idea of a kinsman redeemer. Because the traits of a kinsman redeemer are found in Christ. I mean, this is fascinating. But just think of it. So what do you need to be if you're going to be a kinsman redeemer? Well, first of all, you've got to be a close relative, right? So there was a close relative, Mr. No Name. He's like, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to take a pass. Next in line was Boaz. Boaz says, yeah, it'll be costly, but I'll tell you what. I'm not living for myself. I'm living for God. I'm interested in what's in the best interest for others. I'm going to do this. He is a near relative. You see, we need a near relative. We need one, though, that's also perfect. And so the eternal son of God enters into humanity. It's what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation. God, the eternal son, literally takes on flesh and bone. Conception has a child grows in his mother's womb. Mary is born and lives a perfect life, but he is completely human. He is truly and fully God, and he is truly human. He is a near relative. He can relate to us because he is actually human. And that is absolutely powerful when you realize that that is what God has done. He's given us a redeemer, but in order to be a redeemer, you've got to be near us. You've got to be human. And that's what God did. Do you know that there is a God-man in heaven? And should you die today, you will see a man with nail-scarred hands you may very well be able to touch them. Why? Because Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. He's a close relative. If you're going to be a kinsman redeemer, though, you also have to be able to pay the price to release another from bondage and danger. And that's what we saw in Boaz. Boaz had the resources, paid the price, right? But what is the price of redemption? For all of our sin. If we're in the slave pit of sin, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. What's the price? Is it silver or gold? No. Anybody know the wages of sin? Anybody know that? Death. So someone's got to pay. And 
Who does? Jesus does. He pays with his own life. That's what the blood symbolizes. In fact, you can read about it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Listen to this. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with what? The precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You and I needed a perfect sacrifice. We need one who is God and man and perfect. And Jesus is. He's the only one who could pay that kind of price. If you're going to be a kinsman redeemer, you not only had to be a close relative, you had to be able to pay the price to release us from bondage and death and sin, but you also had to have a willingness, a willingness to actually accomplish redemption. Remember, Mr. No Name said, mm, I don't think so. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass. Boaz stepped in. Jesus came to redeem you. Jesus didn't come to this earth to enlighten you, to give you a little better, better understanding about life. He certainly didn't enter into this world, so I just want people to be happy, right? You follow some of these principles, right? Jesus came to this earth to redeem his people, you and me. It was going to cost him his life. This is why he came. This is the whole plan of redemption, From eternity past, he then enters into time to redeem us. In fact, Jesus himself said this in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. He said, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. All of a sudden, when you understand a kinsman redeemer and how Jesus, the Messiah, fulfills that role, that puts you into a place of awe and overwhelming gratitude. You see, all that the law foreshadowed, the ceremonies, the symbols, all of those pictures, they find their fulfillment in Jesus, the Redeemer. And he has redeemed our life from the pit. And it's the book of Ruth that really teaches us the power of redemption. It shows us that God is not only bringing redemption for like Ruth and Naomi and their family name. That's great, but it's far more than that. There is a family line of David, and from David comes the ultimate Goel. The ultimate kinsman redeemer is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. You see, redemption reveals the reality of God's love. If you have any question, like does God love you? I know, just kind of looking around, that some of you are really going through some tough stuff. And you might be wondering, does God really love me? Think of Jesus, the Redeemer. And I'll tell you, you'll find the great reminder that indeed, his furnished work of redemption is worthy of all of our worship. And so I just have a question for you. Do you know the Redeemer? Do you? there's only two camps in life. Those who do know Jesus, the Redeemer, and those who do not. Is your faith, trust, and hope in Christ, the Redeemer, or are you not sure, or is it like absolutely not? I'm not going to believe any nonsense like that. I want you to know there is only one hope for you, and that hope is Christ. You need to put your trust and faith in Him now, today, There's only one Redeemer. 
Do you know the Redeemer? Because if you do, let me tell you what happens when you know the Redeemer. You want to come to a place where you regularly treasure the great redemption that God has given us in Jesus Christ. People that really understand redemption, they, they have a tendency to want to worship from the heart. Why? Because they get it. They're not playing church. They're not just going to sing a song, shake a few hands. They're like, man, I have been redeemed by the blood of a lamb, the lamb, Christ. When Jesus is your Redeemer, you know what happens? you find that you want to trust God and you trust that God's kingdom plan is even being worked out in the events of your life. I mean, if you're like me, there's times like I feel like I'm just trying to survive and, and get through and the deal with this issue and this problem and this next event. But I want you to know God is at work and he's moving forward his kingdom agenda and I've got a plan in it and so do you. He's working. And finally, you want to be convinced and compelled to tell others of the great redemption that is found in Christ. If you really allow redemption to sink in, to know how fully loved you are, it has a tendency for you to want to share that with others. There's only two camps. You know, it's interesting, in the 1960s, this was actually kind of uh, visualized in the space race between the Americans and the Russians. You know, there was this great rush, like who could actually get into space, and could it even be possible to land a man on the moon well, I want you to know that uh, the, uh, the Russians, they were the ones that were the very first one to actually make a foray beyond the Earth's orbit. Remember this cosmonaut right there? Yuri Gagarin, all right? And when he got out into space beyond the orbit of the Earth, do you know what message he relayed? This is what he said. I don't see any God up here. <laughs> I don't see any God up here. 1968. The American crew, Apollo 8 astronauts, three of them, they were the first astronauts to make the orbit around the moon. They did it 10 times. On Christmas Eve in 1968, in the most observed television experience ever in the world, these astronauts communicated a message. Why, they didn't see God but they saw his fingerprints everywhere. And you know what they said? They took turns reading from the first 10 verses of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Friend, what camp are you in? Are you in the camp like, well, we're just in there on our own, we do it on our own, and, and there's no ultimate meaning, and there's certainly no God? Or actually there is a God and his fingerprints are everywhere. And the great theme of the Bible, of my life, of history and the future is redemption. He cares, he loves, and every person and every detail is important. Friends, the answer to that question, where are you putting your faith, will really determine your ultimate reality because redemption reveals the reality of God's love. And God is moving forward his kingdom through his people. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the glorious reality found in Ruth. This book teaches us all about a kinsman redeemer whom we have in Jesus. And for someone who is here today who has never truly trusted him, when they pray with me now and say, God, I believe I put my faith and trust in Jesus. I turn from my sin and I trust you. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, God, would you fill us with just the almighty thrill it is to know you, that we're worshipers from the heart, and we realize that you're not done with us, and you're working out your kingdom plan, and we rejoice in your goodness 
We thank you for your love and especially the Redeemer. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.